This is Brojo Online. Masculinity, confidence, and integrity with Dan Monroe. Yeah, yeah, like um, we've been talking about doing this for years, really. You know, having sort of a recap of the year and our own personal life lessons, what's happened at Brojo, big, big, all the big stuff going on for us and for our members. And really excited to finally finally do this, you know. We should have done it while you were here. It would have been way easier, but yeah. I think this goes really well. And um, uh, we were just talking last month, and I remember one of the big things that came up for both of us was that last year ended up being a year of self-acceptance. Mm. Which I was really surprising. I didn't go into 2017 thinking, oh, this is going to be my year of self-acceptance. It wasn't until the end. I'm like, man, my whole year, I feel different now, you know, ended up going quite differently in retrospect. What, tell me a bit about your uh, experience. Yeah, I think the same thing, the unexpected nature of it. Um, I was going into to 2017 thinking it was more of an action-based year. Uh, all sorts of new things were going to be happening, which was true. But in terms of what I actually ended up having to focus on and learn lessons about was definitely acceptance. There was the self-acceptance and then actually the greater sort of universal acceptance, being able to to come to terms with life, you know, making decisions that you have nothing to do with. Uh, that was huge for me. And, yeah, we'll talk about it more, but I think the big lesson was understanding that you, you keep getting taught things um, until you learn them. And I thought I'd already learned the acceptance stuff and the universe decided to remind me that I hadn't, you know, and that was really interesting. Uh, very, uh, what do you call it when you've been humbled? Humiliating? No, <laughs> yeah, <but> I was <laughs> humbled. <laughs> Put it that way. Yes. Ego was knocked down a peg or two, that's for sure. Yeah. I'd love to go a little bit deeper into kind of our personal acceptance experiences this year, because I'm pretty sure looking back that a year ago, I really didn't understand what acceptance was. Mm. Now that I can look back, I thought I did. I thought I'd accepted a lot. In fact, I thought I was pretty self-accepting at the start of 2017, but uh, looking back, man, there was a lot more to do kind of like you clean the living room and then you pick up the carpet and look under the couch and like wow what is that you know there was there's so much and what I'm really uh, stunned by is how how different my life feels now mm. that I've sort of processed all that so that's really what I'd like to kind of recap on so what we're going to do is each share kind of our five top experiences and lessons from last year is that right mm -hmm. yeah we want to start with this one? Yeah, well, uh, tell you what, why don't you go first, man? Why don't you pick your number one? And uh, we'll dive into that, and then we'll just sort of let it play out from there. Yeah, sounds good. I, I put self-acceptance at the top of my list because it was the one that I would say had the most profound impact on my year by the end of it. And I'd say my experience was I went into 2017 also thinking it was going to be kind of an action year about goal setting and, you know, reaching new highs in life and my business and my coaching. And I had all these sort of loosely organized ideals of where I wanted to go. And I made lots of progress on all of those, but they weren't nearly as significant as 
the realization that I hadn't finished unpacking my past. I guess the best way to put it. And I think the realization came that whenever I would encounter some small disappointment or setback, it would bring up all of these sort of past pains, okay, in a way that, that I didn't see coming. Like it would feel like that evidence-based, I'm not good enough story, kind of peeking out from around the corners. You thought you'd killed it, but now the cockroaches are still kind of scurrying around. And I was really surprised to discover that I could watch my, becoming much more self-aware really, really helped with this. And of course, journaling was kind of a lifesaver as it always is. But the realization that every time I encountered a challenge, that little story would try to attach, that this is gonna be hard, you're not skilled at this, or you're out of your depth, or you failed at this so many times, you're unlikely to succeed this time as well. Whatever, it would just be these little stories. And for me, the experience was that I actually needed to go and look at those past memories in my past that it was attaching to and just kind of face those, kind of confront them. Somehow I felt empowered to confront them. I'm like, yeah, what is that? Why do I still remember this one relationship that didn't work out the way I wanted or this one business failure or this one time I was embarrassed publicly, whatever, uh, and look at them and come to a place where I felt just I had learned everything that I needed to learn. I became actually truly accepting of it to the point that it no longer felt like a pain. It felt more like something that I really valued and appreciated because I couldn't be who I am now unless I'd had that experience. That was a very, that was a very striking thing for me to realize that all those things that I liked to not think about then became kind of the most valuable things in my whole life story. They were kind of the things I wanted to write books about, you know, that was very striking. <clears throat> mm, you know, it's, it's funny right now I'm reading Bravo to zero, Andy McNabb. He's the, um, the British SAS soldier. And he wrote a story about in the nineties when he went behind Iraqi lines and they got captured. But there's this part, and that's what the SAS is famous for, where they had to run essentially 200 Ks in about two nights to get away. It's just nothing but running, and they were cold and wet and hungry the whole time. And what was interesting is after 200 Ks, the smallest of injuries becomes your living hell. You know, this nightmare that's, that drags down, ultimately kills you. And... That's what was coming to my mind while you were speaking is so many people are trying to move on with their injuries without dealing with it properly. And the longer you go, the bigger deal it becomes, you know, the more, the more high impact it, it comes to the point where unconsciously it steers you away from things. It's like, if you're, if you're limping, you're going to, you're going to take the easier ground just to avoid that pain of that limp. And that's what I think I've, I've seen a lot of both, in both of us and, and in the people that I'm working with is this kind of eagerness to move past something that hasn't been dealt with yet. And that thing doesn't stay back there. It comes with you. Everything comes with you. And, you know, I think the, the word that comes to mind for me the most is regret. If there's anything where you're still thinking I should have, I shouldn't have, where you're not okay with the past as it happened, you're not totally cool with the way it went, then there's still work to be done on it. 
you know, and that will become an injury that hampers you if you don't do that work. You know, I think true acceptance of your past is when you look back at everything and you're like, thank fuck it happened that way. Mm. Everything, every little detail of it, especially your own behavior. And that's the most amazing feeling now is that, you know, even uh, six months ago, all of those past experiences felt like they were working against me still. Hmm. They were interfering with my ability to progress. If I wanted to approach a cute girl, immediately I'd think about all these past experiences where I couldn't muster up the courage or where I felt rejected or where something else happened. And those would be my reasons against why this was going to not succeed, right? Now it's the opposite. What I find now is it feels like all of those past experiences are the reason I'm doing it now. Hmm. They're my motivation. They're my incentive. They're my, they challenged my why. Like, why am I doing this? This is what I want to happen. Why am I starting another business? This is what I want to happen. You failed before. Yep, that's why I'm going to try harder and not make that same mistake. Instead of dragging me down, it kind of acts as, I don't know, one of those like pool floats. It's kind of like pushing me up. Which I never would have expected that, that to feel that way, you know, that experience personally. Well, I think what you nailed is what's needed is you have to go into it rather than away from it. Whatever it is in your past that you think you're ashamed of and so on, you have to dive into that thing. You have to pull all the pieces apart and try to figure out what really happened. And with the beauty of hindsight, what you know now that casts you know a new light on that situation. And what I love is that idea of of life being this linear line, like every second that goes by is preceded by the second before it. So everything that ever occurred in your past has led to now and contributed to now. And that's the key point is no matter how fucking painful and awful and shameful the experiences was, if you're doing the right thing now, that must have helped. It must Mm. have. Mm. Um, And people, it's like, you know, scientists with a graph, if you've got a big dot line of dots going up and there's an outlier and they try to like rub that outlier out and ignore it. (laughs) That's what people think with their past. They have a traumatic experience or a thing that they're ashamed of or guilty about. And then, well, that's an outlier. That's not who I really am. I'm all these other things that went well, rather than going, actually, that's a great sign of who I am because it stands out to me. It was an emotional experience. And I think this brings up the bigger belief thing that keeps coming up for me when I'm coaching people is that difference between rational beliefs and emotional beliefs. You know, that idea that like you can think, you know what, I'm going to be okay at this thing. This is, there's no real risk here. This is not a threatening situation, but your emotions go, no, fuck that. Remember that time it was real scary. And, and, and that's the part where actually the decisions are often made, you know, and you can rationalize something to yourself all you want. Your emotions don't care. They need to, the emotions need to be shown that times have changed since the past and that that past experience was part of the learning process. It was your white belt leading up to black belt. You know, it's the, it was the necessary suffering that caused motivation through frustration, uh, learning what not to do. These are all very valuable and necessary lessons. Mm. But people so often look at their past as a mistake, a thing that shouldn't have happened without realizing that whatever joys they have now have been directly contributed to by that event. Easier said than done, but that's the kind of work that needs to be done. If you think anything in your past hasn't, you know, hasn't helped, 
you're looking mm -hmm. at it wrong. You know? yep. It needs to be looked at deeper, not avoided. And that's the thing I love. Now I love every single relationship failure I've ever had because they mean I am now so much smarter and more capable of creating exactly the relationship I want. I never could have done that without those experiences. Mm. I would be just as clueless as I was when I was, you know, 10. So I love, I love that mind shift. I love how that's happened for me. Yeah. I think you picked up on something important too, is if you look into your own experiences, you know, about you, versus you, you learning from yourself, it helps train you to stop comparing to others. Because I think that's where most past regret comes from, is you see somebody else who didn't have that happen and enjoys life more than you, and you mm. think that's why. Mm. And there's so much assumption and bullshit in that assessment, it's so unhelpful. A, you don't know what happened in their past, and B, you can't be sure that they're actually enjoying themselves now. And C, maybe they're enjoying themselves now because of what happened in their past. You, you know, but people do that comparison thing. They think, you know, well, that guy wasn't bullied, so I must be a loser. So no, 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 that guy has a whole different thing going on that can't be compared to. All you can do is look at your bullying and go, what did I learn from that? How did that help me? And not just try to lie to yourself about it, but actually measure it, which takes time and it takes a lot of courage to look into. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And patience and kindness to yourself. Yeah, so, so the, to yourself. Yeah, that's right. So, so the, that's right. It's interesting. It's a form of honesty too, isn't it? We tend to warp it in a negative way, but it's it's not accurate. I found that quite quite intriguing as well. Is how how much I would use those past experiences as a way to punish myself, mm. uh, even subconsciously. You know, um, I think that's a, a great measure of of accuracy. If you look at an event and it's still not neutral to you still not seen as neither good nor bad, then there's still work to be done. You know, helpful versus unhelpful, sure. But if you think of it as good and bad, it's got that emotive judgment to it. Um, it's still not seen as just a thing that happened, a necessary event. Um, then, yeah, I think there's still work to be done. And there's always still work to be done. Yeah. I'm fully expecting a relapse in about three months on something. <laughs> yeah. Kind of the normal self-development cycle, isn't it? But man, I love seeing where this could take me. You know, being at being at the top of the vista, looking over the beautiful views, are like, man, this is why I've been climbing this hill. You know, it's to love it. So, so the beginning of your year was full of challenges. Oh yeah, um, and actually they escalated up near the end. So I I got what I'd call compound challenges. Like every time something kind of went wrong three other things would go wrong on top of that to kind of just, you know, beat me down. And uh, I was just looking at my sort of five lessons here. Actually, that brings me to the first one. The biggest lesson I learned around acceptance or the release phase, as we call it, when we're talking about our 3X model, is letting go of control. Mm. That's, accept that's, a, that's essentially the nature of that release phase is you're releasing control. And it's so funny because we designed it, but I still wasn't quite getting it. So we could see it was there, but the application to yourself was always the hard bit. And for me, it was around accepting what I couldn't control. And that was really difficult for me to do this year because a lot of the things look like I could control them. You know, the, the biggest example for me was when I got kicked out of Czech Republic. That was probably the most upsetting thing that happened for me this year. And 
got kicked out because I, I it was all I was responsible for my behavior. I had procrastinated on sorting out my visa and I had misread some information and uh, got myself into the shit. I got kicked out. And for two to three weeks, my girlfriend and I struggled valiantly to find a way to get me back. We were digging out old legislation. We must have done 40 fucking phone calls a day. We were trying to find any sort of tiny, I don't know, indiscrepancy or something in the law that would allow me just get back for one day and lay my application and, and sort of nail it. There was even to the point where we thought we found something that was worth taking a risk on. I got all the way to the airport, but I had fucked up my flights. They were the day before, so I missed them. There's this constant like theme of like almost, almost, almost like climbing a hill that's made of gravel, just kept slipping down. And when after about two or three weeks, we we're both stressed as, and it was starting to affect me. And I looked at it, I'm like, I've got to stop fighting. It's clear. Finally, I can see it. Like, all of this is so far out of my control. I'm, I'm, I'm fighting against bureaucracy. I'm fighting against a language I can't speak. I'm fighting against everything as much as I could. And I don't need to be. I absolutely don't need to be. None of this stuff is life-threatening. And only about 1% of it can be affected by my influence. The rest is all on other people. And I just thought, in terms of how I'm spending my energy right now, this is wastage absolute wastage there's nothing being gained from this it's just stress it's just fucking cortisol this is deteriorating my relationship with my girlfriend things are getting strained and i was just speaking to her one day. i'm like let's just stop we'll just stop let's just accept what's happened and work with that information so we did and, and you could feel like the weight come off immediately as we realized we don't actually need to be fine we we had a preferred situation but we don't need that preferred situation. We can make the next one as, as best as possible. Mm. What was funny is that lesson carried on because later on down the track, I'm now in the UK couch surfing, trying to survive three months, you know, ban period before I can get back to check. And um, my girlfriend came to meet me and we're in a cafe. I remember this bit specifically. And she's looking at me and she's like, you're stressed. I can see it. I'm like, no, no, I'm not stressed. I always deny stress, you know. She's like, no, no, you are. I'm like, no, nah, no, nah, definitely not. And, and she said, well, well you just, I just don't think you you accept the situation. And I said, no, no, I totally accept it. I'm, I'm a confidence coach. Why wouldn't I be awesome at acceptance, you know? And this kind of thing was going on, this battle. And then this, I don't know, I guess a voice came through and I realized, fuck, she's right. I don't accept it, but I couldn't understand what it was because I thought I did accept it. Like I'd just been through that phase where we decided to let go of fighting it and so on and so forth. But what I realized was while I was telling myself I accepted the situation, I still had a lot of problems with it. I still thought there was something I could change or I still thought it was unfair or I was a victim of some kind. And what I didn't accept was the awareness that I didn't accept so it was this double layered thing where I didn't want to acknowledge that I was struggling to accept something. Mm. And so I couldn't accept not accepting. And that was what I was getting my stress from is I didn't like the self image. I didn't like being a guy who struggled with acceptance because of that. I couldn't even deal with the original acceptance problem. You know, I couldn't let go of the original thing because I was too busy clinging to an identity of a guy who did let go. 
Mm. That was that was huge for me. This like, wow, this thing goes fucking deep, you know. Layer after layer after layer. Mm. And that endless attachment to identity, that guy you always wish you were, how he keeps coming back and just holding you down, you know, just pinning you to something, these rules you have to follow and just not allowing you to be free. Yeah, I had an interesting uh, sort of side effect that I didn't expect come out of <clears throat> my, my self-acceptance experience. So most of the, the, the out, actually all of the outcomes I would say were great, but the ones that I saw that were great was like, for example, this, this sense of loss of neediness. I had no, I didn't need anything. Didn't feel like I needed a girlfriend. Didn't feel like everything in my life was sweet. I was so happy. Lots of things I want to improve, but I didn't have any attachment to like, this is missing and I'm, my life will never be happy until I have that. All that crap went away and I loved it. But there was this interesting side effect that hit around September. So September, uh, Yuan and I went away to do a uh, my self-reflection for that quarter. And so I had a good time to listen. This is usually when major changes happen for me is when I reflect on the last three, six months, year of journal entries. And then, boom, all this understanding hits at once. And that's actually where I'm at right now. I just came back from a week in Wellington doing a massive year-long reflection, and I feel like I just read 50 great books, like the top 50 self-development books in the world. New awareness. One of the things that happened uh, after September, probably October through December, was I lost my sense of motivation to do anything. Didn't really feel like dating seriously. Didn't feel like investing a whole lot of time at the gym didn't have any particular hunger to change anything. And what was really fascinating was I pretty quickly became aware what it was. It was that all of my, my, my primary motivating force in the past had been that I felt not good enough. It felt like I needed to change in order to feel okay about myself. I needed to be more fit in order to be okay in my own skin. I needed to have my business be more successful so people would look at me better. I didn't identify it as people-pleasing, but it was definitely, and it, and it wasn't just pleasing other people. It was also the sense that I needed to be more in order to be acceptable to myself. Once that disappeared, once I had self-acceptance, that didn't work anymore as motivation for me. And suddenly I had to discover a whole new source of inspiration, which took about three months. I'm finally there again, but it's a whole different fuel now. It's a whole different, you know, justification for going to the gym. That's, yeah, that's huge. And I think this is, I've noticed a lot of people cling to the not good enough story. And part of the reason is that they think, well, that's, you know, if I'm, if I don't feel that I need to change then I won't, and they actually kind of, it's like, uh, what do you call it? Stockholm syndrome. You know, the, your tormentor becomes, you fall in love with it. Well, at least my not good enough story wants me to be better. Um, and and I, I remember actually going through a similar process. Uh, my not good enough story was really manifested in other people's approval. It was just the kind of representation of it. If they liked me, I was good enough. If they didn't, I wasn't. It was all on them. And so my motivation was to keep them on the yes um, approval path and that was 
or get me going, but that steered me so far off track with values. I mean, you know, by the time I was 25, I didn't even know who I was at all. I didn't even know what I liked or disliked. It was bizarre. That was where my first crisis really happened. And yeah, and then I had to reset, like I had to decide a new reason for doing things. And I think, uh, yeah, it's kind of, it's like every game you make, there's a consequence. So you gain self-acceptance consequences. You lose that uh, stick that was beating you from behind. Um, And, you know, for me, one of the, the bigger changes around that was to, it wasn't about necessarily eliminating the not good enough story, but working with it rather than against it. And what I found is the not good enough story, it's like a trick. It's like a interrogation trick or something. It sounds like it's saying that you're not good enough according to these criteria. But what I've found is it's actually testing you to see if you will fold under the pressure of trying to obey those criteria or whether you'll have integrity. Because the funny thing is, is when I do act with integrity, the voice goes quiet, like I've won the game. Hmm. But when I try to please the voice, it just gets louder and louder and louder. I can never get it to shut up. It's, it's like uh, trying to smoke cigarettes to stop wanting a cigarette. It just gets worse and worse. So the funny thing is, is every time I've obeyed the not good enough voice, where it said, don't do that because, or you better please them or make her happy. Every time I obeyed it, it said, well, there's the next thing that's your problem. There's the next, I could never satisfy the bastard for more than a few minutes at a time. Mm. But as soon as I'm like, no, nah, fuck you, I'm going to do it anyway. And did it, the voice goes away. Boom, mm. just silence after the fact. It rages first, like, uh, and it still happens, like when I launched my program that I just launched, voice is raging like nobody will want to do it it's terrible you suck and just just went okay press the button on launch and the voice goes up and just goes silent (laughs) you know it was i i think people take the not good enough story as feedback on how they're doing rather than a challenge to integrity then i realize that it's disobeying the voice that makes it go away not obeying it but um yeah and in terms of talking about self-acceptance we often think of that voice as essentially the representation of lacking self-acceptance that voice is saying you're not good enough um but i think of it more as that voice saying it's trying to say i'm testing your integrity right now and and, you know i've been thinking a lot about the concept of earning self-acceptance you know one of the things i hate about self-development industry is they often talk about self-acceptance being this like easy meal ticket you just look in the mirror and go you are good enough and it will work and it fucking doesn't it absolutely does not it does the opposite you look in the mirror and you go you're awesome and your brain goes no you're not what are you talking about remember that time when you felt this and this and just enrages it but earning self-respect i guess earning acceptance where you went and did the thing that you thought you weren't good enough to do anyway you just went and did it because it was the right thing to do that gives me the biggest breaks from that not good enough story than anything else. That's when not good enough story goes, okay, he's on track. I'll leave him alone for a while. And I think I've got an ongoing theory at the moment that if that voice is coming up, it's actually because I've started to drop integrity and I've been able to see that every time. It's something I've been testing very recently when I start doubting myself and so on and so forth. And I look at what I'm doing, I'll see gaps. Like even now during my launch, it started coming up again. 
<clears throat> and I could see gaps in how I was taking care of my health. I could see um, gaps in how honest I was being with my girlfriend. There was bits coming up. And I was like, ah. Oh. And so I went and did the things, and the voice went away again. And I was like, ah. Oh. It's like a cleanup crew, that voice. So saying you've missed something. But it doesn't know how to say that. So instead it says you're useless, you suck, you're a loser, don't do it. And we miss it. <laughs> Prove me wrong. Mm. Yeah, very interesting. Like I had noticed that ever since sort of hitting that feeling of total acceptance with myself, who I am, my past, all everything, I lost this fear of doing, of challenging myself, approaching a stranger anything i just don't feel the fear now unless i don't do it and then the voice comes back right um what i find is like every time i i, I get an idea like hey i want to go talk to this person and i go do it that sense of self-reward is so strong so intense that that the self it feels like the self-acceptance meter if there was such a thing just went through the roof like when you hit one of those and it goes ding yeah, you're like yeah. yes that's the feeling i want that sense of self-approval and, and it's, it's funny because i've noticed at times it actually feels like i'm performing but i'm performing for myself i'm entertaining myself you know um i, I really like that feeling that sense of everything i do i'm doing purely to impress me it's a wonderful, wonderful place to, to, to live. Yeah, you know, and I think what I was saying before about letting go of control, I think most people in their attempts to impress, it's to impress in a sense that's outside of their control, impress somebody else or set, set themselves an achievement that they can't decide whether or not it will be achieved. So even some people, when they're trying to impress themselves, they're still doing it in their outside of control realm. You know, I impress myself by getting the promotion. So, no, you don't get to decide if you get the promotion. Impress yourself by going for it. Mm. You know, you don't get to decide if that girl likes you, but you impress yourself by going up to her and talking to her. You know, that's that if people can get both the focus on what they can control and not a, not a single step beyond that line, understand they cannot go beyond that line, and then within that realm try to impress themselves, I mean, that's essentially the formula for confidence, I think, isn't it? So both acceptance and the sort of impressive responsibility and honesty. What was your next one, then? Well, let's see. My next one, I'd say my next biggest realization that defined 2017 for me was the realization that my mind is a tool, which is is a very distinct thing from my mind being all of me. It's more like I used to, you know, I grew up and I always thought, you know, what I think is what I am. It's kind of like being inside your own matrix that you created, but it's the only thing you can see. And now what I've realized is, and I think part of this came through mindfulness meditation and part of it came through Vipassana and part of it came through just our psychological studies. But I realized that it's more like, two parts, computer and its user, or a horse and its rider. They're separate. And I'm not the horse and I'm not the computer. That's just my brain. It's just a tool. If I train it, it's useful. If I don't, then it'll, you know, like a horse will react every time a firework goes off. 
I just freak out and take off running. That's what my brain would always do whenever it ran into some unexpected panic situation. And the realization that I could do things like jump off the horse and just let it freak out all it wanted and feel totally fine while it was off freaking out was really eye-opening for me. It let me really analyze. I think this was a key step for me in beginning my self-acceptance journey because it's what allowed me to look at those painful past moments with clarity and with full disclosure and honesty was to say, yeah, I'm not going to like this feeling. That's okay. I can deal with that. I don't have to immerse myself in it. You know, it's in the past. I'm just going to watch my brain freak out a little bit as I remember this painful breakup or whatever. And that was the only way I was able to really directly confront those things and, and, and unbox my reaction to them, my perception of the events, separate the actual hard fact from the absolute bullshit that my brain created around that, that memory and learn. Until then, it just stayed tucked away under the rug neatly where I didn't have to look at it, but it kept causing me pain every time I wanted to look at starting a new relationship or any time I wanted to start a new business or challenge myself at the gym. Um, these were still there. That's, I love that um, the analogy of the horse and the rider. Like We can ride our minds to certain things. It's a useful tool, but... When the mind packs, we don't actually have to stay on that horse or control it. And I think most people try to control it. You know, I've had <clears throat> a, a number of clients this year looking help for panic with panic attacks. Um, so severe anxiety. And anxiety is one of the most uh, kind of most painful emotions for people most of the time. You know, it's the one that they struggle against the most. It's the, the horse panics and they're trying to hold onto its neck. And... I started seeing a theme that what I've been calling emotional shame, but essentially they weren't giving themselves permission to have a panic attack. They weren't allowed to. Mm. And that was what actually amplified it. Mm. So it's like, if your horse starts jittering, you're like, no, and you start slapping it. Like you don't do this again. Don't you do this to me again? It's just going to panic even more. And that's what I saw as a panic attack is somebody beating up their anxiety rather than just letting it run waiting for it to come back when it's done and really waiting, like not calling it back, not trying to speed up the process, not punishing it when it got back. There's none of this just this. okay, I'm having my anxiety again. That's anxiety time. I mean, that's the beginning of a longer term process where eventually you go to like, have my anxiety is telling me something important. I need this information. But that idea of somebody staying on that horse, a panic attack is when somebody is trying to subdue, their anxiety. And that's where 90% of the pain comes from. And that's with any emotion, rage. Mm. When your horse gets angry and you're trying to calm it down, that's when it gets really angry. And so funny. Yeah. If you're angry and somebody tells you to calm down, it pisses you off even more. And yet you do that to yourself and think it's going to work. Yeah. You're angry. Like, no, just don't be angry. You're kicking you know, the horse with spurs and wondering why it won't chill out. <laughs> And I think, I think the reason people try to control the horse is because they think they're on the horse. They think this, this anxiety is going to take me somewhere. This anger is going to make me do something bad. It's like, no, I, I think you don't have to do anything. You just let it be. I think most people think they are the horse. Right. They mm -hmm. don't realize there's a separation. You know, and, and, I, and I, I love that in particular analogy, the horse and the rider, because the horse is this sort of independently minded, naturally untamed beast. 
that reacts every time it sees something bad or good. It sees some nice green grass, it's, it gets distracted, right? And it, if you didn't train it, it's just gonna stop and eat that green grass. You're gonna be like, well, hell, I'm gonna be late for everything now. But you can train past that. You know, I have a weakness for ice cream. I think you do as well. And, uh, and it used to be like, I'd get this idea of ice cream in my head and I'd be like, I'm not gonna be able to relax now until I have ice cream. Now it's just the horse sees the ice cream. I'm like, yeah, yeah, you see ice cream. It's okay, we're, we're gonna ignore the ice cream today. And now my, my brain's actually getting um, more responsive to that. Like I don't have to fight it now. Just like, yeah, that's nice that you want ice cream. We'll have it someday, not today. Today we have different objectives. And that sense of just like a horse, you, can't, you, know, you can't control the whole thing. It's this massive beast way bigger than you are. But you can control one thing, which is where its head is pointed. And the thing I've really been paying attention to is how do I control my attention? If I can do that, everything else becomes much easier. I don't have to control the beast. I just have to point it in the right direction. As long as I've done that, it doesn't really have much else to distract it. That really, uh, that lines up a lot with Stoic philosophy. You know, anybody, I guess, listening is interested in this would really pick up Meditations by Marcus Aurelius or one of the other Stoic classics. But um, I like that idea where it's kind of like sometimes you have to get off the horse because it's just being too much for you right now. Like if your anxiety is just killing you or you're just like locked on some obsessive compulsive thoughts or something like that, or you just, you can't get yourself unstressed in that moment, you can get off the horse but you can still lead it by the reins. You can still keep the head pointed somewhere while it has its shitty time. Um, and I think what we're really talking about in practical terms is the understanding you can always control your behavior. Always. People often blame their emotions for their behavior. They blame their choices on how they felt. They say, I wouldn't have hit him, but I was so mad. It's like, you're mad and you chose to hit him. You've got to understand that and. Mm. That bit where you always have a scope of options. Now, often an emotion will blind you to the larger array of options, but there's still always at least a binary choice of do something or don't do something. And you don't have to suppress the emotion to make that choice. You don't have to fight the emotion. The emotion can go raging and you can still make that choice. I've really noticed myself with that one this year as well. Like times of great stress when everything was kind of compounding, like when I missed the flight on top of the fact that everything's going wrong and I didn't know where I was going to sleep that night and so on. There was still this choice like, okay, well, do I just try to find the next train ticket or do I have a big tantrum here at the airport? I can do two of those. Both of them are available to me and the emotion doesn't decide which one I choose. I do. Do I drown in this motion? Do I jump on the horse and have a wild ride with it? Or do I just drag it kicking and screaming alongside me? Not trying to calm it down. It will calm down at its own time. I can't sustain any emotion for, for long unless I get on the horse. Mm. You know, and, and this is what uh, Russ Harrison act therapy would talk about as struggle switch. Mm. I start to control the emotion. It explodes. If I just let it be, it runs out of steam eventually. In longer term, it's getting to the point where you see all emotions as helpful. My anger is telling me something, my anxiety is telling me, even my stress, my depression, they're telling me things that it's helpful. But I think before that, it's just that I'm just going to let it be. Instead of getting angry about my anxiety, I'll just be anxious. 
I'll just have the anxiety happen. And while that's going on, I've got these tasks I need to complete. And I will go ahead and complete those tasks whilst feeling anxiety rather than I will control the anxiety before I can do these tasks because that's the endless procrastination and on the good stuff. And amazingly, it's the only way the anxiety will go away is when you learn to accept that it's there and that that's okay. I've been calling it the 1090 rule. When most people experience a, an emotion that they put in the uncomfortable category, the bad category, 10% of that is actually the emotion. And then 90% of the pain is their reaction to the emotion. And you don't actually have to do that bit. That bit's totally your choice. You can just have the emotion. It's just this wave of anxiety, bit of a sickness in the stomach, sweaty palms. It's nothing. It's really not that much. But going, no, I can't be anxious now. It's really important. Now you're struggling. Now you're hurting. Now you're like washing in the dishwasher of emotion, you know, or washing machine, you know, that tumble. Effect. You know, there's, that's, that's actually an analogy that really came up for me quite a bit this year as well. Do you know anything about how waterfalls work? No, not really. Ever done whitewater rafting? Mm, yeah, I've done no, that. There's, there's a rule if, if you were given the safety advisory properly in your whitewater rafting adventure. If you happen to fall out of the raft and go down a waterfall, what will happen is the water goes down the waterfall and then it does this, this loop back on itself. Now the problem with that is because the water is plunging down into the, into the, the river below and it creates this circular loop like a washing machine, if you try to swim up, you just get dragged back to the waterfall and push back down again and you'll drown. The only way out is to accept it and swim down. Now, nobody wants to do that, which is why they have to, to educate you. It's like, look, if you get stuck, this is the only way you're going to get out. And that related so well for me in, in the struggle switch. Mm. Yeah, that, oh, that's such a good analogy. You get the same with a riptide. You fight against it, you'll drown. You just let it carry you out. It will run out of steam, then you go around the thing. You know? mm. <clears throat> um, yeah, that's, uh, well, that's, that sort of skips me ahead. I might jump onto my next one now because it relates to that. Um, one of the things that I got into uh, this year a lot was, was stoicism, which it's not every part of stoicism I agree with. They actually talk about trying to suppress emotion a lot, and I'm not big on that. But one of the things that I really love about stoicism is the acceptance and of an endurance of pain. So one thing the Stoics are really on board with is that life has suffering <clears throat> and that there is no suffering-free life. And despite sort of me, I'd always kind of accepted that. I, I, I had an understanding, like, especially for me, it was significant years ago, I met a multi-multi-millionaire uh, who had everything that I thought you're supposed to have and he was still suffering. And I thought, oh, it doesn't matter how much you have. Suffering's relative. It comes with you and matches your level of society. You know, you look at, say, the Kardashians complaining about their makeup. They are literally in pain as they do that. That's their version of pain, you know. Comparative doesn't matter. So I was really into this idea of suffering because despite the fact that I've been living hardcore by my values and really sorting my life out, all the areas of my life are as controllable as they can be for a human sort of thing. All of that was going on, and I still had all these problems. And the problem still hurt. 
And despite all this wonderful knowledge about accepting emotion and stuff like that, I still was struggling. And I came up with this uh, analogy about life, which is that life is boxing a more skilled opponent. That's what it is. A slightly more skilled opponent. You're in the ring, but no matter how good you are, you're still going to get knocked down eventually because the guy's just better than you. He just does. And you keep trying to get up and he doesn't let up. In fact, when you're down, he sees the opportunity. There's no referee here. When he's down, it compounds. He'll kick you while you're down. He'll punch you while you're down. He'll wait till you get onto your knees and then kick you over again. Um, and then that's what sometimes. Sometimes he just will not let you get up. And other times you get up and you fight another day sort of thing. But the idea that he's always better than you. And I found this analogy just so helpful for my situation, which is it's inevitable that I'm going to get knocked down. That can't be avoided. No matter what safety systems I set up in my life, what skills or wealth I accumulate, that boxer's just watching me and laughing, waiting to get that next punch through, and it's going to come. And what I need to be aware of is I've always got the choice of trying to get back up or forfeiting the fight like a coward. Those are the only options I actually have. I don't have winning the fight as an option. That's the key thing. I need to let go of that option. There's fighting as long as I can before the next blow gets me down. And then in particular, and I know this is kind of cheesy, but it's that getting back up bit. Mm. That's where my character's really been built. You know, when I went through all this drama with getting kicked out of check and stuff, and then one problem after another, there was little things. The technology that I needed to run my business while I was traveling didn't work very well. Finances went a bit shit for it. Like all these things, I was just like, while I was down, they were stomping me on the head. It was really annoying. And what I realized is like, no, at no point do I go, well, I, I stop now, you know, I'm, I'm giving up the fight, which is different to trying to win the fight, which is controlling stuff outside of your realm. The getting up part, you can choose. You can still choose to get up while life's trying to kick you in the head. Trying to beat life. No, it's not going to happen, but you can fight better. You can keep fighting better. And <clears throat> For me, that, that analogy has stuck with me when the times where I just wanted to go, oh, fuck this thing, you know, and those those moments where you're just like, oh, just give up on everything, sacrifice everything, and just go live in a cave somewhere, you know, that kind of runaway flight response. I was just like, this is the stoic thing. Basically, are you dead yet? No. Then keep going. <laughs> that's it. And that's what I kept doing is there's times where the pain emotionally, mentally, whatever you want to call it, just seemed like it was too much, like I'd had all that I can take. And I just kept asking myself, well, am I dead yet? And so often, what I thought was the most amount of pain was so far off being dead. I was miles away. I had a roof over my head. I had my next meal available. There was no immediate threat of death anywhere nearby. I wasn't even close, not even remotely close. So the idea that the fight was over was ridiculous. I just wanted the fight to be over because I was tired. Mm. But actually taking care of yourself when you're tired is part of the fight. You're still going. You know That fight, when I say fight, I don't mean that you're raging with action. Mm. I just mean you're doing the next best thing available to you, which sometimes is resting and relaxing. Um, but that was huge for me because I found that no problem is unendurable. And that's that's the sort of deep truth is that there's no problem that you can't keep going with 
you can choose to move on to a different, better problem if you're working on a pointless one, but that's still keeping the fight going. You know, you're still getting boxed to death, you know, and that's ultimately we're, we're slowly getting beaten to death by life. That's, that's what life really is. It's a very, very slow beating to death. But some people happens very quickly, others it's dragged out, but the, the real thrill, I guess, comes in just how you fight back, how you get up again. And, yeah. uh, I just kept reminding myself of that when I was at the end of my tether. I was like, are you dead yet? Oh, have you seen, uh, is it The Revenant? Yes, I watched it again recently. I love that movie. That's what we're talking about. He always, what is he talks about? It's like just one more breath. That's yeah, all you As long as you can breath. breathe, you can move. Yeah. Yeah. I love that, actually. I've been living by that lately. And actually, the, my number four was a sort of redefined relationship with pain as well. Mm. You know, what, what I became aware of this year was that, you know, there is no growth that I've ever seen, no change that happens without pain. Even just being alive, you're, you've got growing pains when you're a teenager. You know, you want to grow at the gym, you want to build some muscle, it better hurt when you go. If it's not hurting, you're not doing anything. Mm. Right. And likewise, if it hurts too much, you're just injuring yourself. You're looking for this, this sweet spot of pushing yourself past your comfort but not into the point of, of, of actual injury and so far I've been carrying that awareness into all the areas of my life that I want to grow push myself to the point where it hurts almost hurts to the point where I want to distract myself from the pain and think about something else so now when I go to the gym I don't pay any attention to how much weights I put on I just put on a good deal of weights and then I go jump under the machine. And I'm like, does it hurt? <laughs> no, it doesn't hurt enough. Let's put some more on, mm. you know? If it, and if it feels about right, I'm like, okay, let's do 10. Okay. Now that's starting. I'm starting to feel that I can squeeze out a few more though. And then I start paying attention to something completely different, like my breathing um, or the music and just take my mind off of the sensation of pain. So I can squeeze out a few more just like the Revenant, you know, as long as you can breathe, you can keep going. I'm amazed at how much further I can go than I would have predicted that I could have. I would have been like, this is my last rep. And I'm like, no, let's see if that's true. You know? And oh. I've, I've really been enjoying that, that change in perspective that pain is good. Pain is gross. You know, to a point, you have to understand the difference between injury pain, like putting your hand on a hot stove, and the pain of, for example, going for a run which is going to make you more fit. And that's actually one of the other things that I really became aware of in studying um, something else we'll talk about, the triune brain and neurotransmitters, was that most of the pain signals I, my body gives me are temporary. They're like messages saying, are you sure you want to waste energy on this? So like if I go for a run, pretty quickly I feel puffed. You know, and my body, my legs are screaming like, I know you can't do this anymore. But if I keep going, the pain is gone. Mm. Like there was just this point where my brain was trying to talk me out of it. And I chose to ignore it. I chose to just work through that initial sense of pain to see what was on the other side. No more pain. I've discovered the same thing with hunger. If you feel really hungry and then you don't need anything, hunger goes away. You need to go to the bathroom. You don't go to the bathroom. I don't have to go to the bathroom anymore. It just goes away. That's amazing how many signals that, that my brain gives me saying stop are really kind of bullshit when you look at them 
straight up. Been really struck by that this year. Yeah, I think you hit, <clears throat> you hit on a key point around instant gratification is too. So often you get a little pain signal and it just wants something nice. It wants a little dopamine hit. And it just needs five minutes of patience. If you really are in pain, the pain will still be there in five minutes. But if you're not, if it goes away in five minutes, you know it was a false flag. And I, I also learned, you know, the some I think most of the time the pain should be growth related. There should be a good reason for that pain. It comes with a reward. But I also believe occasionally you need pain just for pain's sake. I don't mean putting your hand on the stove, but I had a couple of experiences this year. First one uh, was I did the Tongariro Crossing, which is a fairly hefty uphill hike. You know, it, it was about eight hours for me with no training whatsoever. It was like, you know, SIS trials. It was, it was just ridiculous. I couldn't believe how hard it was. But what was interesting is I've got an old injury in my, in my hip and because I was untrained, it flared up right at the beginning and basically my hip locked up, my left hip. So I was one leg could bend and the other one had to be kept straight and dragged eight hours, most of which was uphill. And there was this one bit where I'm in the gravel and I had like toddlers overtaking me. It was a very busy day. I'm dragging this one leg to hold like that's that painful, sharp pain of cramp in my leg every single step for eight hours. Were you uh, imagining Leonardo DiCaprio dragging himself? <laughs> it was kind of, I had some pretty, pretty big hero fantasies about how awesome I was for enduring this, you know, that helped get me through with the ego. But there was a bit like, this happened very early on and turning back was an option. Mm. And it was definitely, I was nowhere near halfway. It was, uh, it would have made sense to turn back and I knew that this thing wasn't going away. But partly it's because I just couldn't live live it down that my girlfriend was going to complete this thing and I couldn't, but it was a thing where I was just like, no, this won't kill me. I know this pain. I know it's not like I'm going to aggravate an injury. that leave me crippled for life. I just know it gets locked up and there's nothing I can do about it. And I also knew like, here's an opportunity for me to be really suffering for quite some time to get something done. And I don't know. I was kind of inspired by that because I've had a lot of, you know, I've been really like you. I've been changing my relationship with pain. And I was like, I want to, I want to do it. And it was interesting because it really, the sweet spots are so much sweeter. When we got to the top where there's like the really blue pools there, I was so much more appreciative of them because I got to stop, you know? And I was like, Oh God, I got to rest. Every rest stop was bliss. It was like a heaven. Um, and then the, the absolute, you know, sort of self achievement feeling when I got to the end, it wasn't just that I did a big walk, is that that walk was three times harder for me than a healthy me would have had to go through. So I had that experience, and then, of course, I've been doing the cold showers almost every morning, um, which, you know, there's some science to suggest that exposing your cold exposure helps with weight loss and things like that, but what I'm really doing it for is that every day I do something that hurts so that I can train myself to quickly move into something that hurts. Mm. And that's just to train my sort of my trigger where I see pain and that's, I don't have to think about it very long. Mm. I don't have to think of a way around it or anything. There's no way around a cold shower. You can't have it without hurting. It doesn't matter who you are. Every time you step in, it's like, oh, you lose your breath. Um, and, and it's so funny because it just helps me throughout the day, knowing that I have both the endurance and the sort of quick pain trigger. 
like if something hurts and it's going to take a while, I know I can get through it. And if something is going to hurt sharply, I know I can step into it. Mm. So those kind of what you might call pointless pain experiences uh, serve to give me the skills I need for purposeful pain experiences, you know, and I absolutely think that those, those two incidents, I guess, in my life over the last year um, were crucial, like core skills that I was building mm. endurance and pain tolerance. You know, mm. it was really important. Yeah. I felt exactly the same way. I, and in fact, I'm, I'm, I'm really enjoying, it's almost like pain training. Mm. Mm. Pain training because it's not, it's not that I enjoy pain. It's that I've realized its value and that avoiding it is only going to hurt me and steal everything that I want out of life. So there you go, you know, confront I, <clears throat> I think exercise is the best way for pain training because it's almost always beneficial pain as well. You get the bonus. I mean, cold exposure is the easiest way to experience pain because cold always hurts people. Um, but like, you, what do you call those squats where you've got your back against the wall and your legs are bent and your thighs just turn to fire? That yep. thing. Like uh, if you do one of those a day for as long as you can or a plank for as long as you can, a plank especially, you try and do like, you try to build up to five minute planks. There's like a, a program you can do where you start at 30 seconds and inch your way up. I mean, not only will that be great for your muscle development and core strength, but you just have this piece of pain every day that will also subdue the other pains throughout the day. Like if you can purposefully put yourself through a certain type of pain, then something like uh, going up to a stranger and saying hi just seems a little less sore, you know, because you've already done the real hard thing in the morning. Everything else is smaller in comparison. I absolutely agree. I'd say a lot less sore. Mm -hmm. This is going to hurt, but, but I took a cold shower, you know, an hour ago. That was way more painful than I imagined. This is going to be your entire perspective shifts. But without that, yeah, every pain is something that you feel you should avoid. And the horse runs away. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think when, when people first get into self-development and maybe they just focus on one particular area like their health or social, there's this overwhelming factor like this is going to be an all-day-long trial and torment. But all you really need is a single spike of pain throughout the day. One, it can be 30 seconds like to work on your social life, just a 30 second social activity that really puts you like into that pain category and then bail on it and rest and relax and enjoy the rest of your day with no pressure to achieve anything. You do that every day. It's just like going to the gym. You don't have to work out eight hours a day to get in shape. You just need to eat good food and, and do like some high intensity exercise. It can be a short, sharp pain. If you can figure out what that really short, sharp, pain is get it done early on in the day the rest of the day is sweet and you get to be guilt-free about relaxing a lot of people struggle they burn themselves out and stress out because they don't feel they really earned their downtime they probably haven't and they probably haven't that's why they should feel guilty binging on netflix if they've spent the rest of their day doing fuck all you know but you can watch a whole series on next netflix safe in the knowledge that earlier that day you went up to a group of girls and told one of them that they were attractive while everyone was watching. Mm. You know, you've earned your Netflix when you've done that shit. Don't, don't binge on it for six hours, but you've earned your break. And I was talking about that with self-acceptance, not just self-acceptance, but the release phase, the relaxation part of your day. Earn it. Always take it, 
but make sure you've earned it. Make sure there's something to recover from. Mm. And that you do that every day and you'll just be constantly going through that three X cycle we talk about and the thing will just keep improving, you know, but I think too many people either burn themselves out and don't relax, but they're never actually really enduring a sharp piece of really helpful pain. And then there's those who are just doing nothing but relaxing, but they're just bathing in guilt the whole time because they know they haven't earned it. And I think it's not just enduring that pain or experiencing that pain, but also choosing. Oh yeah. Choosing's huge. Yeah. Making the decision that I, I I'm choosing this because it benefits me that, that key, even though it's uncomfortable, you know, that key awareness that I'm more important to me than this moment of discomfort is. My future is more important to me than this moment of pain is. That's essential. Well, that brings up, like, for me, <clears throat> most of my beliefs, I, I think, are quite scientifically validated. But I do have a few not so, um, not so sure beliefs. And one of them is I think that pain will choose you if you don't choose it. It's this kind of weird rule of the universe thing that I believe in that probably isn't validated by science. But what I've found is if I don't choose to have a cold shower in the morning, I don't choose to do the actions in the morning that I'm most scared of doing and so on, other pain finds its way into my life that I didn't choose. Shitty things happen to me. And what's really interesting is you can, like, if you look at my situation last year with the visa and the problem, the pain I was avoiding was going through the visa application. Well, that pain found me. But by the time it found me, it was this wild beast. There was nothing I could do about it. Whereas doing the application early on would have sucked. Those kind of things always do. Dealing with immigration is a nightmare. But it wouldn't have sucked as much as what I went through. Not even close. You choose the pain or it chooses you. Absolutely. Absolutely. What's your next item? Are we on number four now? Yeah, I think so. Um, well, the next one, okay. The next one I've got is that a confrontation doesn't need to resolve an issue. It just needs to get the truth out. Now, what I found with not just myself, but all the other people, pleasers and everything in the world, is their biggest fear is some form of confrontation. And the confrontation I've, I've come to define is when you express something true about what you think or feel, that almost guarantees a conflicting reaction. At least you think it's going to. That's what you'd call a confrontation. If I say this thing, they're going to react in a way that's not comfortable for me. That's a confrontation. If they're not going to react in that way, then it's just a conversation. You're just expressing yourself truthfully and they accept it. It's fine. So this takes many forms for people. This could be expressing attraction. This could be setting boundaries with someone who's pissed you off. Um, it could be asking for what you want. All of these things can be that truthful expression that gets a conflicting or what you might call a negative reaction. And what I think I've noticed um, from my own experience is so often if I say, probably with my girlfriend, that was where most of my confrontations take place simply because we spend the most time together. Is if I tried to go into the confrontation with any form of hoping to resolve the problem, then immediately it became a manipulative experience. Immediately I had an agenda and the way I expressed myself wasn't just raw honesty. It was careful, methodical, strategic honesty, which can very closely uh, border the line of dishonesty. It's not long before you're crossing that line and starting to uh, expand the truth to be more convincing, you know, 
And what, I, what was really interesting for me is like so often we'd be butting heads about something. And as soon as I took my pedal off the resolution, you know, uh, if I took my foot off the resolution pedal, if I stopped trying to fix the thing, the, the whole confrontation would just dissolve and it turns out didn't need to be fixed. Mm. And I think this is the biggest problem people have with a confrontation is they want it to resolve an issue and often resolution means that everyone feels good at the end of it. That's what they really mean. Themselves first and then hopefully everybody else. So when they go to set a boundary with someone, the resolution means at the end everybody respects each other. Mm. And because they've got that pressure on it, they can't even get started because their mind has predicted the situation and it doesn't end in respect. It ends in carnage. And they can't come up with a strategy that doesn't end up with the simulation always ends up in that carnage. Rather than going, let the carnage be, let's bring on the carnage in order to make sure the truth is on the table. And I think this gets, for me, the most difficult was when you do actually know someone pretty well and you're pretty accurate at predicting how they're going to react because you've been through this before. And for me, that was my next line that I, you know, in terms, I think of myself as pretty skilled and, and confident with confrontation, but there's always the next thing that you're not so good at yet. And that was my one was actually, I've got to bring up this truth to my girlfriend and I know how she's going to react because the last six times I've done this, she's reacted exactly the same way every time. And it was uncomfortable for me. And it's going to happen again. I know it. This isn't some mind reading bullshit that most people do with strangers. I know this girl well. To be truthful in that moment without being attached to it going differently this time, you know, was one of the biggest struggles I went through this year. Um, but what I realized was it comes back to the analogy you and I always talk about, about playing tennis. I just had to hit the ball over. That in itself was where the value of this comes from. I get it off my chest and she knows where I'm at and we don't have to agree on that. We just have to be aware of this truth. It helps us make future decisions. It helps us know each other and actually provides a necessary tension to keep the relationship from becoming blasé, mm. you know, and this was actually kind of two lessons rolled into one because my other lesson was a relationship will never be easy unless there's no passion. So this was the same sort of thing. If your relationship with somebody is really easy and there's just never any tension or anything like that, odds are truth is being withheld and that's going to cost you, you know, but yeah, the big lesson really was you don't need to resolve. You don't need to win anything with a confrontation. When you express attraction, it doesn't need to be reciprocated. When you ask for what you want, they don't have to say yes. When you set a boundary with someone, that person can continue being disrespectful. They might not like you. They might talk about you behind your back afterwards. All of that is allowed to happen. The truth will set you free eventually. As long as you keep confronting when it needs to happen, eventually everything will get sorted. You know? yeah. I really like this ties back to our first topic, which was self-acceptance. Mm -hmm. So like I'm of the mind immediately that, you know, when, when you have a confrontation in our mind, we're often looking for respect from the other person. But what we really crave is respect from ourselves. And we get that regardless of what happens, as long as we went forward with the confrontation. Confrontation is a gift to yourself. People, like when I say to, when I'm working with someone on conflict re resolution and, and the problem is I don't know how to handle someone's reaction. I always tell them, well, you don't have to. It's not your job. It was like, well, why would I bother? 
doing this if I can't get what I want? And it's because, well, what you want is out of your control. What you can get is self-respect. Every time you can go to sleep without going, I wish I had said. I wish I'd asked for that thing that's now taken away from me. I wish I'd taken that opportunity that I've now missed. I wish this person, um, you know, who walks all over me got a piece of my mind. You know, I can't imagine how many hours I've spent lying awake fuming at myself for a lack of action in a confrontation. I didn't need to win the confrontation. It just needed to happen. That's it. That's game, set, and match. Just getting it out. And in terms of the resolution, it's, it's ironic that if you let go of trying to win, it is far more likely, and this is scientifically valid, it is far more likely to end up going your way. If I'm in a sales conversation, I don't try to sell. I just try to express what the thing is as truthfully as possible. That person I'm talking to is less under pressure. They're more likely to be open to buying. It's simple. If I confront someone without trying to prove to them that they're wrong or trying to make them respect me, they're not going to feel defensive. They're going to be more open-minded. We're more likely to get to a resolution. Mm. The funny thing is people confronting with an attempt to get an outcome I call it chasing soap in the bath. You just push the thing away. It runs away from you because you're chasing, you know? Yeah. Well, what I'm really struck with is that if I feel resentment towards someone or anger towards someone who I haven't really fully openly confronted, at least 95% of that anger is anger at myself. I'm not aware of it. Not aware of it until after I confronted them. And I've seen situations, actually, I've got a new uh, Polynesian neighbor who's not the friendliest guy. He likes to bang on my wall whenever he hears. I keep waiting for him to because we're having a Skype chat, right? Mm -hmm. So I went and confronted him about it for my own benefit, right? Now, nothing's really changed. He still banged on the wall once or twice. I told him, you know, I told him what I thought about it. And, uh. But what's really interesting is that the tension is gone. I see him in the hallway now and he's fine. I don't feel anger towards him. I don't feel anger towards myself. We've come, I've expressed myself, I've confronted him. He knows how I feel about it. I feel open to do it again if he continues. All the tension is gone and yet nothing's actually changed except me being honest. Yeah, I think people don't understand that until they go out there and really do it. They don't buy that story. But, you know, I I got lucky when I first started working on confrontations. It was in corrections. And I was so scared of doing it that any time I did it was a massive win for me internally. It was my greatest fear. Absolutely, I was phobic of it. There is such a thing as being a phobia, especially of the violent guys. Mm-hmm. So I knew had beaten up police officers and stuff, and I knew it would have no compulsion of putting me in hospital. You know, big guys, tattoos on their faces and stuff. To tell a guy like that off, uh, it just it filled me with absolute panic. And so I got lucky when I first started doing it. I really was just doing it for me because these guys don't give a shit about some little white guy telling them what to do. You know, they just told me to go fuck myself. <laughs> they had no fear whatsoever. I had no impact on their behavior whatsoever other than to like steal a few minutes of their time. So I really wasn't doing it for them. I had to do it for me. I was obeying the rules of my job. It was uh, as a matter of kind of job integrity. I had to say that they're not allowed to do this thing and they were going to go do it anyway. 
but I had to say that because then I could take them to court and follow a process. And so in the end, I thought, well, I'm just doing it for my job, but really I was just doing it for me. Cause I, I remember my first time when I really stood up to someone who was scary and they actually did a big confrontation with me. My nightmare came true. You know, they stood up and I'm looking for the panic button under the table and shit. Um, eventually that wound down because part of being a nice guy is you know how to clean up a mess too. And, and I walked away from that. I'm like, fuck, if I can handle that guy, I can handle anything. Mm. And just the idea that I can handle it happening was good enough. I didn't need to convince him of shit. Mm. I don't need him to like me or respect me or do what I say. Mm. I just need to be able to go home and said, I stood up to that big motherfucker today. That's it. That's, that's the whole success right there. But uh, yeah, what I realized this year was even once you're past that, when you're good at the like standing up for yourself, the next one is being able to do it where you know it's not going to resolve anything. It really has no chance of a win. Sometimes you'll be surprised, but in your mind, the calculation has come up with a zero and you still do it because the real win is in doing it, doing it for yourself. You know, this, this segues really well into my number four. I think it was my number three topic this year, mm-hmm. which was um, learning about what's called the triune brain and neurotransmitters. Mm-hmm. Now I've talked to the guys at Brojo about that, but I'll recap it briefly. So the idea is that the triune brain is a concept that our brains developed in an evolutionary progression at the innermost center is what's referred to as the reptilian brain which has very similar, we can think of a reptile, you know, mm-hmm. um, it can feel pain. It can feel fear, not much else. Okay. It can have fight or flight response. That's all part of the reptilian brain, very basic survival skills. A wrapped around that was theoretically the next evolutionary layer, which is called the paleo mammalian brain. There you can think of dogs, monkeys, cats, you know, mammals basically. And, uh, and that's where emotions were introduced and that's where neurotransmitters were introduced. So dopamine, oxytocin, serotonin, cortisol, all of these came onto the playing field and created huge complicated behaviors that I love learning about because they explained so much about my own emotional reactions, explained the feelings of attraction, love, um, you know, addiction to dopamine, video games, ice cream, sugar, caffeine, all of it, all of it ties back to fundamental chemistry, you know, biochemistry. And, uh, and, and this is where you get all the really interesting mammalian behaviors like pack behaviors and pair bonding. Why do you have couples formed to raise children? You know, this all happened as a result of that paleo mammalian brain. Then outside of that was the human brain, what we call the neo mammalian brain. And it's where we have our our higher level thinking, things like math skills, things like the ability to fantasize, to imagine a future that doesn't exist. You know, even if a dog had hands, it probably couldn't create a city because it can't imagine something that's not there. And it's this this kind of idea. Now, I always saw my brain as one thing. It's just a thing with thoughts, right? And seeing these layers and understanding that there were parts that I could couldn't control, like chemical release, like the feeling of fear, cortisol, the feeling of stress. I always thought of these as thoughts that I could somehow control and suppress. 
You can't. It's a chemical. Your body is releasing it naturally. Same with oxytocin, which is the feeling of love or attraction to somebody. You didn't choose that. Your body reacted because your brain decided this might be a suitable mating partner. Same with dopamine. Same with serotonin, right? Every, every single uh, item. Now, I found that um, hugely mind-opening in terms of understanding my own emotional reactions and looking at them differently. Now when I feel something, I'm like, what is that? And I could quickly start to identify, oh, that's a desire. I want something. My dopamine is high. Why is my dopamine high? What is it that's triggering that? Um, and I could make decisions with, with a much clearer understanding of what my brain is doing. And there wasn't some hidden agenda that I had to, you know, kowtow to and, you know, and relate to. And what were we just talking about? Just Confrontations. Confrontations. Confrontations and uh, there was a particular connection point that I, that are really, that really stood out to me. But, but the realization that I know what it was. So the realization that most of the things that I describe as emotions, which I always thought of as thoughts that I couldn't really control are actually, you know, at their root chemicals. Mm. When it comes to a confrontation, most of the time, what I'm wanting to satisfy is that emotional feeling, not this intellectual thought. I don't need to come to an agreement or convince them or win them over. I need to release. The tension is all this, this cortisol, you know, and these, these neurotransmitters that are going haywire because I feel under stress. The moment I do that confrontation, they all stop firing. My body relaxes. My brain relaxes. I feel at ease, even though nothing has changed in terms of our final agreement. Yeah, you know, that is huge. It, it relates back to that analogy you are saying about the horse. I like that one because a horse quite accurately represents that, that mammalian brain. And that's where all the emotions come from, this mammal place. Like, that's what I love about dogs is that there's no thought they just feel and whether they like you it's just they, they wear their hearts on their sleeves there's no hidden emotion i mean one of the funniest things to look up on youtube is guilty dogs you know when they've been caught doing something wrong you know, there's no deception involved they're just so obviously guilty they just give the game away and that's without facial expression you know but that's the thing i've always thought of what this brings up is people think of themselves as having this one brain and then they can't comprehend why there's a conflict in that one brain. Mm. Like how can I know something and do the other thing? How can I believe one thing and another? It makes so much more sense when you think of these three layers who they have phone lines going to each other, but they are under no obligation to agree with each other. They're a committee. They're not a single organism. If you were a single brain, there would be no conflict. It would only be constant agreement. What you've got is, you know, multiple programs working at the same time with different agendas. And I think that people really struggle. That's where cognitive dissonance is. is it's essentially one part of the brain disagreeing with another. I've been calling it, to, to make it sort of simple to understand, is rational beliefs versus emotional beliefs, which we spoke about before. The horse thinks one thing is happening. But you, with your neocortex and your human brain and your ability to predict and map out factors and costs and benefits, 
can see something else is happening. But the horse doesn't give a shit what you can see. You can't even talk to the horse. It doesn't have a language you can communicate with. It's just going buck wild. For a horse to understand, you need to grab it by the reins and pat its neck and calm it down. And I think a lot of people are spending so much time in procrastination trying to reconcile the conflicting beliefs in their brain, the conflicting urges, without doing like what you've done. Go, hey, I've just had this chemical release because one part of my brain thinks this is happening. But my human part, the part that's talking to me right now, the only part that really talks to me in a language, sees another thing happening. You know, and fight or flight such a great one for this. The reptile and the mammal, some threatening big noise goes off. They go, something, let's do something. And, and any other animal, this is why, like, you might be a horse's best friend, but you scare it, it runs away from you. It doesn't have the ability to go, wait, now he's my friend. This is probably not what I think it is. It just goes, oh, fuck this. He's scary. I'm running away. Like, I run away from everything scary. And, and the reptile, you know, just trying to fucking sleep, and that's all it cares about. You know, you can see when that gets into your mind. Like, every guy knows the reptile when all of a sudden his standards go out the window. He's like, I will screw anything tonight. I don't care. <laughs> and that's the reptile speaking. He just wants to procreate, you know. He does not care. Um, and gets you in a lot of trouble. But that's the thing is understanding, like, there is not one voice in my brain. There's often a dominant voice. Mm. But I, I think of the neocortex. It speaks to me in terms of values and rationality. It tells me what I really care about at a deep core level beyond in a brief emotional feeling. And it, and it calculates for me. It looks at the situation and goes, how do my values map onto this situation? Well, the current variables that are most important in this situation, how does that affect which value I should be living by and how I should be living by it? But while that's going on, the emotions are going, I like that. Oh, I don't like that. Oh my God, that's scary. Oh, that's fun. And just making a lot of noise. Now, if I can get them to come along with me, they'll enhance the experience, which is a lot more different than trying to shut them off. Like people who are big into stoicism and stuff, they're trying like, I want to be nothing but rational, like a psychopath. But there's no enjoyment in that. I want the thrill of emotion. I want the ups and downs to get a rich experience, to create emotional memories and, and actually have a life but I've got to bring that horse with me where we need to be going, not just fucking being dragged behind it. That's a great analogy. I don't want to replace the horse with a motorbike. Yeah. No connection there, right? I want the horse to be a horse, but I just need to train it. You know, what's interesting, you, what you were just describing, I was picturing, um, you look at an animal, like a dog, and you can even see the conflict between its two layers of brain, between its mm. paleoidoin and its you know, reptilian is that if you, you can show a dog a steak and it'll go, oh, I want it. But it's afraid to take it. It doesn't know if it's allowed. So it just freezes. <laughs> like, ah, can I have it? What do I do? You know? And when watching that conflict in, in an animal, it's relatively as simple compared to us. It's really striking because we see that exact same thing in ourselves at every level. Yeah, well, we've got that complicated by the extra far more complex level. You know, we've got the part that goes, yeah, but is this right for us in the longer term? And how does this match my past? At least the, dog, <laughs> the dog's got two voices. We've got like 50 in there, you know, and I, 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 I use this analogy a lot for myself is this idea of a committee. There's emotional members, there's survival members, there's value members. And my conscious awareness, that thing that seems to be me is merely the leader 
Now, a leader's not always going to get what he wants, and the leader's not always going to be able to create harmony in the group. And sometimes the leader needs to get things mixed up a bit. But this idea, it isn't just me in there. I'm essentially this army of one. You know, I've got this whole lot of shit going on, and leadership, you know, begins within. I need to get my team on board before I can even hope to lead others. Mm. And, you know, the very simple saying of sorting your shit out. I think what that really means is trying to create some sort of teamwork between the different areas of your brain. That's what sorting your shit out. And you can't do that if you think you only have one brain. Yeah. Because that, 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 that paradigm won't work. You won't be able to sort your shit out if you think there's only you in there. There's lots of different things. They all want different things, but they can work together. You know, it's funny. I just thought of um, when you see the dog conflict, a dog that's excited about everyone being in the room, but it's tired and it's trying to stay awake, that sort of thing. So that's where you got the reptile going, no, no, it's sleep time. I don't care about connections. And the other part's going, but they're all here. Let's talk to them, you know. Oh, it's just so funny to watch. And to have that, to understand, I guess, it's a bit about acceptance. This is why it's hard for us to live. As you go into, say, something where you walk into a room where there's your boss and your crush and two of your best friends and you're tired, your brain is going to struggle with that situation. It's going to have 50 different things at once or once. And understanding that that's what's happening is, is the first start. Go, okay, I've got a lot of conflicting uh, issues. What I like to think of is that neocortex or what do you call it? The neo something? Uh, the uh, the, um, the neo million brain, mm. the outer the human layer. Yeah. It's a moment like this. He really needs to be the leader. He needs to say, look, I know we want all these different things, but I've made a calculation based on this situation. The number one best thing for us is this one thing. Let's go do the one thing first. Come along together sort of thing. And what you're essentially talking about is confronting yourself. Absolutely. Mm. Which is the real confrontation. You know, when we talk about confrontations before, people think they're scared of the other person's reaction. Mm. They're not. They're scared of having to handle it. They don't have faith in themselves to to get through their own discomfort in that situation. You know, when I, when I finally was okay with other people being angry, my problem with confronting criminal offenders went away. Mm. I'd get angry. I'm like, okay, be angry. I'll, I'll mm. wait. I don't actually have to fix this. And it's mm. not a threat to me. What was really ironic is I remember the first time I went into a prison <clears throat> and as a tour, you know, uh, they all yelled at me and, and called me names and threatened me and provoked me from behind the bars. It was like a zoo full of very, you know, very smart and very scary chimpanzees sort of thing. And I was just like, holy shit, keep those guys behind the bars. It's going to piss out of me. Five years later, I walked through the exact same prison, not a, not a sound. Mm. I was like, well, what's changed? And, and it was a huge part is about that confrontation. I was okay with having a reaction to whatever they did by that stage. I was okay with other people being angry around me or aggressive or whatever. And I have no doubt that that affected my body language and everything to the point where it just didn't trigger them off. They didn't see something that would get a reaction. They couldn't control you because you could control yourself. They couldn't, couldn't have put it better. That's exactly. The horse was trained. Yeah. The horse was trained. Now the horse is always a wild animal. It will never a hundred percent obey its master but you can train it, which isn't the same as controlling it. It's about finding a mutual benefit. 
That's what training is all about, is how do we all win from this situation? Yeah, you know, and we've just circled back to, to pain tolerance as well, mm. which is that I, I noticed that most people see cortisol as a painful experience. Any kind of stress, they want to avoid it. Most people, you know. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and as a result, they make decisions that aren't very helpful for them, that are, that are very, very limiting. Whereas if you're willing to say, you know what, I'm, I may feel stressed here if I confront this person. I may experience stress internally confronting this person. I can deal with it. It's going to be a little uncomfortable, and it's going to pass. And being able to move forward on that. I think that's huge, you know. Self-development can really be quite simplified to choosing the pain that's going to help you. And it's all it really is. I mean, obviously it plays out from there, but that's, <clears throat> I think like, you know, you and I have talked a lot this year about the, the negative side effects of just instant gratification and dopamine, you know. So many people will take that easy way out without knowing that they're just setting themselves up for pain in the future suffering um and it, it's just it, there's just so much to be gained in choosing to sacrifice that option that easy way out that masturbating to porn or binging on sugar or talking to your friends rather than the stranger the, all those little things you do to just get an instant high and avoid that stress stay with the stress just a bit longer go into it rather than away from it go towards the thing you're scared of rather than away from it you don't have to go all the way through it. You go as far as you can handle and you can still bail out. You're allowed to bail out any time in the process. There is no action that cannot be stopped prematurely if it's too much for you. But go further than you wanted to. That's mm. it. That, that will always, you know, if that was your only rule, if you just had one law of physics that you obeyed, which was go a little bit more into what I find painful than I want to, everything else will fall into place. And that's great. I mean, the only way you would ever teach a horse to not be afraid of fireworks is to show it more fireworks, essentially. Yeah, you get those horses like police horses that are trained to like go into gunfire and war horses and stuff like that. It was exposure. Mm -hmm. The reason they still have the same horse brain, but they trust you now. They have an emotional experience attached to you that you got this. And so they will walk with you into fire. And I feel that way about my emotions a lot of the time now. My emotions will be scared and going off, but they trust me now. Yeah. I can yeah. feel it. That's a great description. Yeah. You know, when I say, no, we're going to do this now, they go, okay. Whereas before they go, no, I'm not listening to you. Fuck you. I want to go here. And the other one's like, oh, what about this other thing? That's a great description. Yeah. You know, but I had to train them. I had to drag them kicking and screaming sometimes. Little acts like having a cold shower, going up and talking to a stranger. The things where I drag them and go, look, see, this is good for us. See how good we feel after doing that? How proud of ourselves we are? Remember that. That's yeah. different from all those childhood experiences that we misunderstood. This is something the else now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and the billions of evidence-based fucking future <laughs> fantasies that never happened. Yeah, my whole life was evidence-based. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> What's your number five, bro? Um, God. Ah, my last one, yeah, was... I should only work with hell yes options. Now this is a lesson that I've had to relearn over and over again. Now, specifically this for me was about working and coaching clients. There was uh, ever since I started coaching, there's been a battle between my neediness for money and survival <clears throat> 
and working with people I enjoy working with. Those two things were constantly having little battles. So the more my money ran out, the lower my standards got about who I was going to work with. Basically like someone willing to pay me, fuck yeah, I'll coach them, you know? And what I realized is that this has never had a good long-term outcome for me. You know, there's nothing worse really for me than to work with someone who isn't the right fit for me, isn't ready to change, isn't taking action, um, or could be better served by someone or something else. You know, knowing that essentially I'm not the best thing for them either. And it's only ever been my neediness for money that's led me down that path. When I'm not needy for money, my standards are very high. I won't even speak to someone until I see some action, you know. Mm. And that's always brought me the most joy in my work. Like, I love working with, essentially, with a guy who's just like me. You know, a nice guy, people pleaser, who's like, fuck you, I'll do anything to change. Um, and they're excited about it and they're open-minded. Like, I'm thrilled to work with a guy like that. And because he's like that, I can also have a huge impact on him. You know, I just started work with a guy like that about three weeks ago. <laughs> it's, it's amazing. In three weeks, he went from, like, full-blown, super nice guy, like the absolute prototype of a nice guy, um, through to like having deep and meaningful conversations that he leads and initiates. He's even having confrontations and stuff. I'm like three weeks, fuck, that took me seven years. You know, I love that work. And what I realized is that that passion is worth the suffering of saying no to almost everything. You know, I saw a quote from Warren Buffett about investing today and he said, uh, was it today? No, a while ago. And his thing, his advice in terms of business and investment was you just got to say no to almost everything. That was his like number one piece of advice. And I've always understood this hell no, hell yes option, at least for the last few years. But I, I wasn't really living by it. I thought I was. I thought by just being a coach that I'm living there like a hell yes career. But within that is also the other hell yeses that most of the available coaching options if they're not held yes they have to be a no and so lately i've been really focusing on saying no to as much as possible to anything that i'm not passionate about or isn't necessary for my survival i'm trying to say no to it and what i've found is and this is i think this is a a journey type thing so if somebody's just getting started self-development did this they just end up doing nothing because they don't really feel passionate about anything so this is more like something for down the track when you're really starting to live by your values is I'm really trying to refine down where I only do things that are worthwhile. And I'd rather have big spaces of zero of nothing in between, which could be spaces of suffering, you know, low finances or boredom or something like that. It's better for me to have that um, than to take a maybe option. It's taken me a long time to just see the long-term effects of those maybe sort of feels all right, this will do type choices. Um, I really want to try and live more by this one this year where it's just like, I'm either like, fuck yeah, I can't wait or nothing at all. This is good. This connects to my number five as well. Interesting. I described mine as the realization that my most valuable asset is my attention. Hmm. So I used to think it was money. Money could buy you time because you could hire people. Money could buy you, you know, all kinds of resources. So the more money you had, the more options you had. And then I made a lot of money and discovered that, no, that sucks. It doesn't really give me any kind of happiness. 
And then I decided that time was the most important thing. You can't relax or, or do anything meaningful without time and you've got a limited amount. Money's got no upper limit theoretically. Time definitely does. And so I used to really conserve my time and be very, you know, work as much as I could because that time was worth something that I needed to apply. And I found that I would get stressed and burn out, push myself a little bit too far and not give myself enough time for reflection and just rest and enjoyment and recovery. And that became a constant balance. But the thing I became most aware of was that not all time was created equal. I'd have times when, you know, I'd spend that extra hour to work and I'd get shit done. I just get nothing actually completed. My mind just couldn't focus on what I was doing. That hour was a complete waste. I should have gone and watched a movie. Would have been much more productive use of my time, right? For my brain's health. And so what I realized was that in order to do the most that I can with my life, my goal needs to be to cultivate my, that sort of point of focus, that, that ability to control my attention, that ability to steer the horse's head, for one, for one example. Um, and the more I can do that, and the more I can rest well, exercise well, eat well, stay hydrated, not overdo the caffeine, I'm looking for all those things that steal attention away. A big one for me was coffee. Mm. I would drink coffee all day long, then about noon, my brain's a little bit it becomes tired, actually. It burns out on, um, I don't know, endorphins, perhaps, or do probably dopamine. You know, caffeine elevates dopamine. At some point, my dopamine's too high. And I'm like, I'm not even sure what I'm supposed to be doing or what's important. I'm just trying to do everything at once. And, uh, and now I, I've cut out coffee completely from home. Now I'll go out to a cafe if I want to. I'll have one a day. I'm so much more focused and so much happier overall, you know. That awareness has really driven a lot of decisions I've made over the past two months around my work style, um, how I balance my life. I'm constantly looking for what gives me the sharpest and most powerful sense of you know, attention. So for example, now I wake up a bit earlier. Um, I don't work straight away. I do other things like cook breakfast, listen to an ebook, you know, um, take a cold shower. And, uh, and then at lunchtime, every day, like clockwork, I go to a yoga class for an hour then I go work in a cafe for an hour. Then I might go meet random strangers for an hour, or I might do coaching. I don't come back to the office for like four hours. So there's a big block in the middle of my day where I'm just out. And then when I come back, it's like a whole new day and I'm right back into emails and programming and fully fresh. I'm pretty sure I'm accomplishing about three to four times as much as I was in November, just with those little changes of focus. Yeah, I think we are essentially, we're probably talking about the same thing in different ways. And <clears throat> I don't think people value their attention enough at all. They don't realize what scrolling through Facebook really means. They don't realize, yeah, what their third coffee is doing to them. Uh, what that sort of like that mindlessness stuff and, and especially like the higher level of compounding where you try to pack as much value into your attention into a minute as possible. Like uh, I first learned this from Jesse Krieger, my book publisher, he talks about going supernova. So he loves, uh, he loves cycling 
Um, and so what he'll do is if he's got a new potential business partner, he'll go cycling with them to have a business meeting. So he crams like all this value into a single experience, um, which like neither of them, like he can cycle without losing the enjoyment of cycling while he has this business meeting, it becomes a social event. And so like, he's, it's just like, if you looked at a second of that time, he's got just as much as he can get out of life in that time. You know, you compare that to someone just mindlessly scrolling through Facebook mm-hmm. or something like that. What the value difference in those seconds just off the chain. In fact, like you identified, say, with coffee or other activities, some of them actually deteriorate your life. They're not just a waste of time. They're harmful to you. You know, there's, there's already plenty of studies showing what Facebook does to your attention span and what it does to your depression levels and all this kind of stuff. You know, basically it fucks you up. For me, that was a big one this year. Is I'd, I'd started to become addicted to social media. It was just, it was my time filler. So what I've been doing lately is just nothing. If I really can't think of something good to do with my time, then I do nothing. There's either I'm doing something awesome with my time or nothing. Mm. And I'm finding that that's so much more rewarding because nothing is helpful. Mm. Nothing's good relaxation. It's a form of meditation. Often I'll have ideas come up of what I could do if I just give myself five seconds to think. Um, or I'll get like this kind of bored ants in my pants feeling, which will drive me to do something like go for a walk or something. It'll drive me towards an, a valuable activity. But that See, idea, yeah. I tend to, what I find myself doing is if I feel my brain feeling a bit tired and overloaded from emails and programming, what I'll do is I'll switch it up. I'll say now it's time to exercise my body or it's time to go be social and talk to somebody, just go find somebody, you know, or invite someone out to dinner and I'll keep changing those contexts. But the key thing for me, just like you said, was getting rid of all of those wasted things, thinning that, that herd like Buffett, you know, cutting out everything that doesn't have value. I used to watch movies all the time while I was working, but when I actually paid attention to how I was feeling, I realized that's actually really, really distracting me. I wasn't aware of it but it was stealing a lot. Now I switched to music. Mm. Um, Sitting at my desk too long, I start to notice my attention start to drop as it gives my brain would get tired and my butt would get tired. I'd be like, okay, time for, you know, whatever else. So all my routines and structure are being built around those things that actually measurably consistently improve my day and improve my focus. And everything else is just axed until it can Mm -hmm. prove itself. I'm getting so much reward out of that. You got to do that stock take, don't you? And how valuable an activity is. And it can be scary when you see how much of your time is spent doing it. Yeah. That was a very unexpected side benefit is I used to have to manage my calendar religiously to fit everything in. Mm. And now it's very relaxed. It's like, yep, I'm going to work for four hours. I haven't decided on what yet. I'll figure it out when I get there. And that's totally fine. I'm going to take three hours for lunch. That's totally fine. I could never have done that before. I just couldn't have fit it in my day. Now it's much more effective than I could have imagined. Yeah. I find that flexibility as well. I mean, other than appointments, the day is mine to do what I want with. I don't feel this pressure of this massive task list. I do have a task list, but I've segmented it. The top half has to be done and it's a very small section. Everything under that is optional and I have no guilt in leaving that stuff untouched for the day. 
you know, I know it helps me to do some of that stuff and I've actually ordered it. So the further down the list you get, the least impact uh, the activity has. So I've, I've satisfied that perfectionist part of my brain by having everything there as an option. But then I've worked on my values by starting at the top. And as I go down the list, my obligation level goes down with it. And basically it comes like, if I'm bored, I can do this other stuff. But ultimately I don't have to. And this stuff at the bottom of my list, I haven't touched in weeks. And I don't see any negative consequences of that. That stuff really never mattered. I think most people look at their list and think everything matters and end up doing nothing because they're scared of it. So no, 10, 20% max will actually have an impact on your life. The rest is kind of noise that you were told was important, but actually isn't. Same with social. This was great. (laughs) Yeah. I feel like we should do this a lot more, more regularly. I think we could. I think we could. We'll probably wrap it up here for today, but uh, I think we can definitely can definitely make a bit more of a, a regular effort for these and, and looking at the reflections. I mean, this was five of my lessons from 2017. I don't know about you, but I had dozens more. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, all worthy of conversation. It was hard to pick, actually. Yeah. <clears throat> so um, uh, I would like to talk at some point about, you know, some goals for 2018, both – be fun to sort of share our personal goals, but mm. also for Rojo. I think we've, we've come up with some great stuff forward for the guys. It'd be good to introduce. Maybe we can do another one of these in coming weeks to sort of lay out our vision. Yeah. Let's make that the next one. We'll get together. We'll chat about what the future is for both us personally. And also for the community, what we're hoping to, to help them with and what we've learned from their feedback and stuff as well. <laughs>